Um, today I want you to meet someone. His name is James. And he was Jesus' brother. And he wrote the book that I'm going to unpack over the coming weeks between now and Christmas. And the book was his one shot, so it obviously reveals a lot of what was important to him. His book is a bit controversial. Martin Luther, the great reformer, didn't like it and would have very, been very keen to rip out, as he said, burn the book of Jimmy, get it out of the Bible. And you'll see why in the weeks to come. So that little teaser to come back. He is sometimes confused with John's brother, James, the son of Zebedee. But that James was angered, martyred by an angry mob in the year 44 AD. So this is not that guy. And initially, along with the rest of the, the Mary and Joseph family, James was not terribly supportive of his brother's ministry. And we can see that uh, in John chapter 7. But along with Mary, ultimately he became a follower of Jesus. And by the time the issue of um, whether new Gentile believers, new pagan believers had to be circumcised and had to follow the uh, Jewish law came to a head, which was around about the year 50 AD, James by then was a senior leader of the Jerusalem church. He took the lead in that discussion, which is recorded in Acts 15. So this guy was a big fish. And in verse 1 of his letter, which you can follow on if you want to, it's in the um, newsletter, he wrote this, James, a servant or a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Greetings. He called his older brother Lord and declared that he was his older brother's servant or slave, speaking of him in the same sentence as he spoke of Almighty God. What a journey this guy must have undergone as a convert to this new faith of Christianity. Worshipping on another day of the week other than the Sabbath, seeing the food laws and the historic festivals which are at the, were at the heart of Israel's experience as being somewhat secondary, and I imagine being shunned by many of his family and wider friends. Sorry, <laughs> friends and wider family. Now, all the Jewish converts would have gone through that. But James would have gone from memories of playing hide-and-seek with Jesus or tag in the carpenter's shop to later in life worshipping him and praying to him. Anyway, he lived out his convictions until his martyrdom in 62 AD. So he died for his faith in the guy who may have short-sheeted his bed when they were kids. Something to ponder on. Now it's clear that James wrote this letter as a teaching tract. There's precious little personal stuff in it and he's straight into the meat of what he wants to say by verse 2. Now the reference to the 12 tribes in verse 1 may be referring to 
particularly uh, targeting Jewish Christians, but I suspect because most of James is of general application, it's probably just a general sense, uh, an expression for the people of God. Christian teaching since Paul's time has been that the church is the Israel of, the, of God, so that when he says 12 tribes, he's probably just meaning all of the church. Unlike Paul, he's not addressing particular uh, problems in a particular church. It's just writ large across the, across the board. Anyway, have a listen to James. My brothers and sisters... Whenever you face trials of any kind, consider it nothing but joy. Do you consider trials joy? Because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance or perseverance, and let endurance have its full effect, so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, if any of you is lacking in wisdom, well, ask God, who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to you. But ask in faith, Never doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind, for the doubter, being double-minded and unstable in every way, must not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Let the believer who is lowly boast in being raised up, and the rich in being brought low, because the rich will disappear like a flower in the field. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the field, its flower fails and its beauty perishes. It's the same with the rich. In the midst of a busy life, they will wither away. There are a lot of quite curious things in this passage, as some of the looks I'm getting would indicate. I don't imagine James's initial audience enjoyed, enjoyed the trials of life any more than we do. And think of what they had to face. They could face violence from the Roman state, or from bandits living outside of town. For them, famine was an ever-present threat. We are the first culture in world history to solve the problem of food security, and they certainly had not. You lived year by year. If they were slaves, they might be sold to a brutal master, or they might be owned by such a person. Disease was rampant. Every so often, the plague would come through town. Sea travel, in fact, any sort of travel, was perilous. The list of possible trials that they might face was quite long. Life was much more precarious for them than it is for us now, and their um, life expectancy, accordingly, was an awful lot lower. If you made it to 50, 6, you were quite the old guy. The Christian in a low position might be reconciled to the reality of their station in life, but I don't imagine they're very proud of it. Likewise, the rich Christian was not probably that stoked to be told that they're going to pass away like a wildflower. Cheers for pointing out that, James. I was having a good day until I came across you. But as I've sat with this passage... I think the key word that I want to spend time on this morning is, oops, this one, ask. Ask God, in other we'll come back to the silver beat, ask God, in other words, pray. 
I once heard a discussion on national radio um, about prayer. Kim Hill was surprised to learn that prayer was a, a relational thing, not just asking for a whole lot of stuff. I think we can be like that sometimes, reduce it to a list of things that we want to see happen. Also, we often talk about prayer as if it was a sort of a, a tricky but rewarding duty, much like apparently eating silverbeet is good for us, but none of us really enjoy it, except for narrowly. And I don't know if you remember this, but this was a big feature of my childhood, and it was boiled. And it was boiled within an inch of its life, so it would go from a sort of a dark green to a light grey. Tasty. Not. I don't believe it was good for us. Anything that tastes that bad cannot be. Think about it. But to me, and I think James, prayer is at its heart a huge act of faith. Faith in God who is Father, Son and Holy Spirit. And I recall the first week of my being a Christian at age 18. And I sat on my bed and I attempted to pray. I managed a couple of sentences before I, the thought went through my mind, something like, dude, you're talking to the wall. And even though I was alone, I felt kind of embarrassed. So what happens when I ask God for wisdom to get me through a trial, as James exhorts us to do? Well, that request is like the very tip of the iceberg, which begs the question, what about the 90% that's under the water? What's that? Well, I want to have a go at unpacking that. The first thing when I pray like that is I am implicitly saying that I believe in God. Otherwise, I would just be talking to the wall. And that is not a rational thing to do. Sane people do not talk to inanimate objects like jibboard. And the jury is out on whether talking to plants makes a lot of sense. There is an implicit statement that when we pray to God, pray, that God, however I understand God to exactly mean, is there in the room with me and can understand me. Now think about it. If you're an atheist, you don't pray. You might meditate, you might do other, all sorts of other useful things when you face trials, but you don't pray. So that's the first bit of what's underneath the waterline. The second slab of undersea eyes is I, by praying, I am expressing a belief in a God who listens to me, who wants me to open up to him, and can impact my world. Now, not everybody's God is like that. Consider these gods, little g gods. There is the deistic God, and the deistic God is best understood like a watchmaker, who builds a watch, winds it up, sticks it down, and lets it run and leaves it. This was the God of many of the US founding fathers. So praying to such a divinity is pointless because he's not interested. He's found other things to do. This is the God of my family in most respects. 
Many of, most of them believe in God the creator, but not God the sustainer or God the redeemer. It's a God that only goes so far. And there ain't much point in praying to that God. Secondly, in every New Zealand census, there are a growing number of people who declare their religion to be Jedi. You know, Star Wars, whoosh, the force be with you, and with you also, all of that. And actually, a lot of people I know would say, my God is sort of this force, this presence out there. The force of Star Wars, though, is amoral. It can help you be good, or it can help you to be bad. It's impersonal, it's an it. So it doesn't love. And I think many Eastern and New Age understandings of God, little g, are quite like this. It's two. Three, then there are the idols. Now, I went to a Hindu service a while back to pray with them for the people of India because COVID was laying waste to their country at the time. Now, I prayed that night to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ while they prayed to three idols who were about the size, each the size of a small TV set sitting in front of us. They brought them fruit and lit incense to them and sprayed quite a lot of coconut milk over them. I kid you not, it was a curious business. But they were statues. So they've got no power to do anything. So that's the idols. Fourthly, there's a demonic. And it's no good praying to them because they love it when people suffer. They want us to be consumed with despair and bitterness and pain. So they're not going to help. Remember what Jesus said in John's Gospel, the enemy comes to lie, steal and destroy. The enemy does not come to help us heal or grow to spiritual maturity. And lastly and fifthly, you can turn inwards and pray to yourself. Now I understand that there are schools of counselling which say that all the answers to all our issues are inside ourselves and the counsellor's role is simply to draw them out. I don't know about you, but I'm just not that smart. And I need help to make my way through life. I go to counsellors precisely when I don't know what to do. So I need their help. I need the benefit of their experience. It ain't all in here. By contrast to all those gods, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is the fierce lover of his people who will give us what we need when trials come. So he can hear us when we cry and he will respond. He wants, above all else, a relationship with us. And when we pray to him in a dark time, we are affirming his existence, we are affirming his power to affect the outcome of the circumstances in our lives, and we are affirming his care for us. It's a massive statement of faith to let God into our emotional turmoil and need when we are struggling. And I've heard people say, it's just so bad I can't pray. You heard that? Just can't bring myself to do it. That's what sits underneath the iceberg of prayer. Now in verse 3, up there, J 
James tells us that the testing of our faith produces perseverance or endurance. And I think it's because each time we turn to God and experience his grace, it's easier to do it the next time. Now, my first attempt at prayer on my bed as an 18-year-old didn't work because my faith was newborn. I didn't really know who I was talking to. But since then, with God's help, I have survived losing my mother, loneliness, depression, a monumental church conflict, raising four kids, and most recently am surviving separation. I can persevere because I've learned through those experiences that God is good and he likes me. He shows up and his rod and his staff, they comfort me. Perseverance is to make you and I mature. Verses 5 to 8, that middle para there, are interesting. First of all, James suggests that if you sincerely ask God for wisdom in the face of a trial, you will receive it. Looks like a scriptural promise to me, which will be met by God ungrudgingly, or as some translations say, without finding fault. So you don't have to have it all together. You just turn to God and throw yourself at his mercy for his wisdom. Secondly, he gets stuck into people who pray doubtfully in what seems to me like quite a harsh way, really. If you pray for wisdom but are uncertain whether you're going to get a positive answer, you're double-minded and you won't get a positive answer. Don't bother. Why? Well, like I said before, the faith significance of prayer for wisdom in the face of a trial is vast because you are letting God into your inner emotional world where your fears and hopes and insecurities all live. Do you want to do that or don't you? It's like Jesus' question to the crippled man, which I've often reflected on. Do you want to be well? Or would you rather just struggle on by yourself? You've got freedom, you can. Shh. James is saying that God, what's happening out the window? Oh, all right, okay. <laughs> this is why you shouldn't bring your other dogs. James is saying that God will equip us for the journey through the valley of the shadow of death bleep if we really want him to. Well, do we? And a third significant point that's not really addressed here is what is biblical wisdom in the first place? We often conflate wisdom with being smart, but that is not what the biblical writers, including James, meant. It was knowing what the right thing to, to do was and then doing it. So biblical wisdom sort of blurs into righteousness. Wisdom is not something just in your top two inches. It's something in your hands and your hearts and your lips. Being wise is a practice, living wisely. One other thing to note here is that wisdom is the means to make your way through a trial, a means. It's not a specific revelation from God to do this, that, and the other thing. And that's what God wants for you. Our maturity is not based purely in obeying God, but within a transformed mind, it's been able to work our way through the challenging situations of life. 
It's knowing and practicing righteousness. In modern speak, wisdom is more like, like a compass than a GPS with everything plotted out. Now, God may on occasions break in and say, do this, that, and the other thing, but the general experience of the church has been that those occasions, are, for most of us, are quite rare. Finally, in verses 9 to 11, we have some of the upside-down logic of the kingdom, which Jesus' brother James talked about so much. James's, yeah, Jesus' brother. Jesus talked about so much. Like the last will be first. And that God has a preference for the poor and the lowly. Not quite so concerned for the rich. The image of the wildflower in verse 10 is quite chilling if you're a person of means. And it's talking about this. When there was rain in the desert, the seeds that had laid dormant would germinate quickly and wildflowers would bloom. That's the Acapala, I think it's called, desert in South America, which is one of the driest places on earth. And look at it. It's teeming with life. However, once normal transmission of searing sun and hot dry wind resumed, then the flowers were obliterated. Wealth isn't wrong of itself, but it does come with some real challenges. James's reflection and summary seems to be that trials are good things for believers to go through because they force us, or prompt us, it's probably better, to throw ourselves into the arms of a good God who loves us and cares for us. He will give us the means to live wise and godly lives through our struggles. And if we keep doing that, then we will grow in spiritual maturity. Things that would have freaked me out when I was younger, now I see this too will pass. Because God is faithful. Perseverance is the key to maturity. There is no shortcut. When you think about the tough things that you've been through in your life, or should I say perhaps more accurately, been brought through, what have you learned? I heard someone a little while ago saying, you never waste a crisis. Have you reflected on those experiences, painful though they might be? What have you learned? I know for myself that under overwhelming pressure, I can tend to become inert and crawl into the corner like a hedgehog. So for me, I've learned it's really key to keep moving, to keep making decisions, as getting stuck is my risk in a crisis. I want to suggest to you that sometime this week, write out the tough things that you've been through. I'm going to give, we're going to play a song in a, in a minute to give you a chance to reflect on this. Write out the tough things that you've been through. It could be divorce, losing a parent, losing a sibling, child, major illness, addiction, academic failure, professional failure, whatever. And reflect on those experiences. What did you learn? As I've thought about this question for myself and preparing for today, I, I went through a major church conflict a couple of churches ago. Had it had a brilliant time up until the last three months of my time there, and then it was a nightmare. I found myself in the centre of a real mess. 
And it felt like for me that a lot of the people who had been really close to me, that had been very supportive, were saying some very rude and um, untrue things about me. It was tough. Through Steph, I learned from God to leave my reputation with him, to not defend myself. That was a really good lesson to learn. When I lost my mum, I was worried about her eternal destiny, and that was a real heaviness for me. But I learned that I didn't need certainty, but I did need hope. And God gave me hope at that point, and that was enough. Most of the major lessons of trials of life I've gone through, I think I've learned that this too will pass. The sun will shine again, despite appearances to the contrary. Don't waste your crises. Look for and treasure the learning to be had and applied in the future. And know that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. It's going to have Lord's My Shepherd sung to us and just take this chance to, to reflect on your trials. What have, has God brought you through and what have you learned from that experience? Thank you. The Lord's my shepherd, I'll not want. He makes me lie in pastures green. He leads me by the still, still waters. His goodness restores my soul. And I will trust in you. And I will trust in you. For your endless mercy follows me. Your goodness will
What a great way to lead us into this last song. It's a song called Be Thou My Vision. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my Lord, be all else to me, save that thou art. Thou my best hopes by day or by night. Waking or sleeping, thy presence Riches I heed not, nor man's in. 
to him who is able to keep you from falling and to make you stand without blemish in the presence of his glory with rejoicing to the only God our Saviour through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, power and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Thank you. One slight clarification needed to put out there about Messy Church next week we are down on numbers in our core team. Several people have moved on. So if there are people who could help us, particularly with the cleanup and with the kitchen, we would really appreciate hearing from you today. Marie is over there. Go have a chat with her. It's not hard. But anyway, see you next week. <laughs>